WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lazowitz. And this week's guest has a Zoop campaign launching soon for a story called The Magic Necklace and is a noted comics editor, critic, and journalist. Please welcome Claire Napier. How are you this evening? Um, <laughs> surprise <laughs> to be described so grandly. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. Uh, so this is this is our uh, first time guest icebreaker question. What are what are some of the first comics that you remember reading? Um, the first comics that I remember reading were Bunty. Okay. Which is a um, well, it's not anymore. Um, it was a, a girls' comics magazine, a weekly magazine, uh, which we used to have many many of here in in Britain, um, mm. and almost none are left. Bunty um, ended her long run in I think the very late 90s or early 2000s um it was around since the late 50s so it had its time um and part of that was spent with me which was great um I still like to go back and and buy older um and annuals not anthologies um Mm -hmm. because they always they used to put them out in hardback so they lasted a lot better than the the paper stuff the weekly um very flimsy it was not intended to last that kind of stuff now uh you are also a uh film critic you do a lot of film writing on your patreon do you have your oscar picks lined up (laughs) no (laughs) um i am not a um a current um attention payer i just i just can't work that way um (laughs) if you asked me well no because then I would any question that <laughs> this last point blank I'll suddenly not have an answer at all but um no I I haven't I, I see about one to two new movies a year that's all um the vast majority of the things that I watch are um from the archives as it were mm. um and it, it always has been that way because I've always been much more used to uh, watching movies that were on the television um, on terrestrial television than to going to the cinema like it was something that we did as a, as a child my family um, but it wasn't common it wasn't like we were going every weekend or anything it was an event mm-hmm. so I guess I've I've never really deviated from that early pattern you know I, I, I what I was going what going to say is I you know this certainly wasn't going to be me launching into mine because I am bad at watching these uh, <laughs> you know I, I will say that I liked everything everywhere all at once there you go. That's it for me. <laughs> I, on the other hand, go and see at least a movie a week, often two or three. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, I saw uh, Tar yesterday and The Amazing Maurice on Friday, which I compl- so, you know, one of these things is not like the other situations. Wait, what is The Amazing Maurice? I had Maurice? no idea they even made a movie of that. Uh, Pratchett. Oh, it's a BBC animated adaptation of Terry Pratchett's The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents. Did not realize it was getting a U.S. release. I knew it had come out, but it got a U.S. release this week. Uh, Hugh Laurie, David Tennant, David Thewlis, Amelia Clark. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Not uh, not the most faithful adaptation in events, but very faithful in spirit. And very enjoyable. Oh, OK. Interesting. Yeah, the only other, you know, that caliber movie I could think of that I saw recently is I started Nope and then fell asleep on the couch. So. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> I liked what I saw. 
just uh, was a sleepy boy that night. But uh, you are here to promote your Zoop campaign for the Magic Necklace, which is a story that you wrote, drew, colored, lettered, catered, and key gripped. Uh, here I is did. the pat. <laughs> here <laughs> is the uh, the pitch, Matt, if you will. Anne Reed is acting differently since she bought Morgan Le Fay's necklace. She's not afraid of men anymore. Not her brother, not the fuzz, and not the guy who's standing right behind her. Whatever he does, it just can't threaten her. So uh, first question, what is the uh, official campaign launch date for folks who want to support? The launch date is Valentine's Day, February 14th. Um, Perfect. On theme, I think, yes. Very Absolutely. <laughs> what, is, what is the origin of this project? Um, well, it's hard to say. Um, what's the origin of any project? You know, the, the creative urge um, is elusive and easy to forget. Um, <laughs> I, I can't, I don't have an answer for that. What about like a sideways question, uh, sidestepping that slightly? Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, like, do you remember, you know, what sort of inspired or helped you conceive of this idea? I do. Um, I suppose I it, it's it's movies, um, essentially. Um, some of the films, in, in fact, that you mentioned, uh, my Patreon. Um, I do a. Um, bi-monthly which in this case means twice a month instead of once every other month um a column i call it because why not um it's called double features for dozy creatures and i i pick movies that match like on a theme it doesn't have to be a specific theme it's just things that are the same in some way so that i can talk about them both and create uh, an interest through juxtaposition um and sometimes they chain off of each other you know like if you put two things together the third thing might occur to you, and then you need something to pair with that um so i did quite a a long period of um watching erotic thrillers um which was something that that kind of just came out of nowhere it, it kind of came out of um i was a child in the 90s when erotic thrillers were the business Mm -hmm. um, and obviously being a child I wasn't watching them but I was hearing about them I was hearing discourse and I was they still like put reviews of them in the teen magazines and so on um, just I guess so that we know what we're missing I don't know um, but I, I I remembered the genre being something and I remembered some titles um, so yeah I, there was a long couple of years probably um, period when I really went to work like understanding the genre and watching through some of the more famous and some of the less famous examples um and as often does happen if you put enough stuff in something's going to pop out right um mm -hmm. so if you see a lot of something on a theme whether that's a genre theme or something else um the things that you haven't seen yet start to draw attention to themselves, which isn't to say that I thought I could do something better. It's just that I can do something to fit, to fit in, to accompany everything else. Um, because people like revisiting genre and they like more of something, but having more of exactly the same thing doesn't really satisfy anyone. Um, 
like you can do a ripoff and a ripoff can either be transformative or it can be stupid and boring um and i <laughs> i think it's fun to try and be transformative i like ripoffs i like the challenge of adaptation that a ripoff or a genre um redux has to be i think that it's um it's an interesting challenge as a, a creator or a critic i mean i've i've done a lot of um a lot of work on for example like the early image stuff um mm. which is so nakedly stealing often um and i i think that's cool like i like to see what people took and what they did with it and partly i guess i like that because it's a, the way that my own mind works um so yeah it just it just sort of happened <laughs> it's interesting that you were watching uh, erotic thrillers that sort of heed this because in my head i was reading it and thinking more along the lines of your 70 grind 70s grindhouse revenge stuff your last house on the left and things like that hmm. um i mean i wouldn't argue i suppose it's just that that wasn't the mindset that i was in at the time um i, mm -hmm. I can certainly see um similarities but I mean, genre works that way, doesn't it? Like sometimes genre is just, um, when we look at what a genre means, sometimes we get confused by aesthetic. Like um, there's not necessarily a difference between a 70s grindhouse movie and a 90s erotic thriller, except for how they look and like the specifics of the, the era, of the time, what people thought was the way to do it then. Um, like I couldn't say for sure, I haven't made a study of it, but it seems quite possible that um, one thing might just be more of the other than, than we expect it to be. Like if you compare a romantic comedy from the 60s to a romantic comedy from 2003, they're not the same. Um, and so if you were an alien and you were given both of those movies, like, um, I don't know, I can't even think of anything from 2003, but if you're given a movie from that era and a movie <laughs> from that era, you may not think these are going to be the same genre that you might think this is going to be one kind of thing and this is going to be another just because if you don't have that prepared um classification to to make you expect to be the same thing then it might not appear to be because they look different and they sound different and they have a slightly different attitude romantic comedy i try to figure out when the romantic comedy became so much less of a genre because we get so few of them than we did in the the nineties. The nineties, it was it was a big ticket genre, and I can count on one hand, which is completely apropos of nothing in the long run. We're talking about this, but it just occurred to me. Well, you know, okay, a thought on this: the romantic comedy was a a going concern in the nineties because you were still in the era of the marquee movie star, right? So you had your Meg Ryan's, you had your Sandra Bullock's, you had your, your um, uh, oh my God, pretty woman, Julia Roberts. Roberts. Thank you. Uh, you know, and they could carry that genre and they could bring people to the box office. Now when culture is a lot more diffuse, you know, you don't have the names, not to mention the whole idea of putting a movie in a theater is now a risk thing. So it's, you know, your blockbusters and your A24 movies. But there is a place where romantic comedies are very much 
constantly being churned out. And that's the Hall- Hallmark, Hallmark channel. Hallmark channel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I mean, Julia Roberts still pulls one in every few years. I mean, she did the one with George Clooney last year. It's just, it's not mm-hmm. a genre that gets that kind of play, but the we, we see more of the horror and revenge. And you and I are rambling, so we should probably actually talk to our guest. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I can, um, I can, I can contribute to this line of thought because I, I, I do find the, the evolution or, or devolution, as you prefer, um, of rom-coms very interesting. I was talking about it with, Eric Sippel um, in autumn last year. Um, And we were talking about how um, towards the end of the 90s, the writing changed, um, the focus changed. And I I think that that there was a beginning of separating plot from romance. Um, Rom-coms tried to have a plot and also a a romance plot, which I think is because um, Richard Curtis was so popular, was so successful, but he's a slightly complicated writer. And as he watches movies through the 90s to the early 2000s, they get simpler, they get dis- disassembled into easier, more digestible things. Um, like Love Actually, for example, is told in vignettes. It's not attempted to make it a real plot, a real movie that involves everyone together and braids them together and has you know a beginning middle and end it's just a bunch of stories with beginnings middle and ends um and if you compare that to his much earlier 90s stuff um like notting hill you have the same array of stories and array of characters and array of little details but they're all combined together in this very effective very um literary way but he, he get i think that if you watch the way that his films change, I think the kind of the whole scene changed with it. And in the the two thousands, you get like um, ones movies. That I think that the majority of them became more sort of genre plus romance, like Fool's Gold, um, mm. is like what if an Indiana Jones movie kind of thing was a rom com, which is silly because all Indiana Jones movies have rom com elements. Mm-hmm. It just by saying we want to make it a romantic comedy, I think they got shy and embarrassed about that part. So they, they had to try and pretend there's also a whole other plot. There's a whole other thing that you can watch and it, you don't have to just look at romance. It, it's actually, there's an adventure and like guns at nighttime and stuff. Um, and I think that there, there were things going on behind the scenes with like writing um, security like strikes and the reasons for strikes and so on that um, kind of supports that line of thinking I don't know too much about it but I think that that's I think that that's uh, strongly what happened and also casting got bad um, the, um, the 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 2000s rom-coms are not often well cast and sometimes they're very strange um, and to, to, to this day um, rom-coms are not cast for character they're cast for you know looking nice um which isn't how romance functions like we all we just saw um the batista thing go around twitter like batista wants to be in a rom-com and people won't cast him and he thinks that he's not attractive enough that's silly because it's not about being attractive um it's or rather attraction is about being intriguing not just looking nice when you're standing still based on the context of beauty norms um or like normativity Mm -hmm. um 
so all it will take is like a couple of corners to be turned um and the like philosophical focus of the genre to be taken up by someone who actually has some power the idea of creating character writing and character casting and bringing them together again it'll all just it'll snap back right back uh, i want i want to flash back to you know we started off talking about erotic thrillers you know mm. that that's something that for me always meant like oh these were the movies that were playing on hbo after 10 p.m when i was growing up and i'm thinking i'm thinking about you know the movies that would have been playing during that time so you know we're talking about like your basic instincts your body heats um you know disclosure with michael douglas but you know let's say minus the vr aspect uh <laughs> january man uh they just did a whole season on 80s erotic thrillers on Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This. And they're about to start one on the 90s in about a month. And I, I'm looking, well, on erotic uh, sex in the movies. And so erotic thrillers, because it's the 80s and 90s, feature very heavily. Yeah, yeah. So, but, and it's a genre it, that's mostly dead because of how unsexual mainstream U.S. cinema is now. Yes, Absolutely. But, you know, in thinking about the, these movies and thinking about what I think about when I think about erotic thrillers, it's, it's funny because I think a lot of those movies centered like, you know, a middle aged white man who was having sexual exploits. There was one that played like, I swear to God, it was like every night and it starred Tom Berenger and I cannot tell you the name oh. of it. Oh, Matt remembers. I, oh, I can't remember the name, but I remember it. And, and, oh, okay. and, and don't forget uh, David Caruso's Jade, where he tried to become a movie star. Um, damn, I remember yeah. Tom Berenger, and I can't remember the name of the dang movie. Well, listen, there's a reason we don't remember the name of the movie. <laughs> we're, 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 we're getting caught on probably one of the least famous examples, Sliver. That was yes. another one. But ag go. again, we're, we're feeding into that. I'm wondering you know, where are the erotic thrillers that center those other, you know, views and lenses? And the one that I, I keep coming back to is, do you ever bounce with Gina Gershon and Jennifer Tilly? Bound. Bound. Oh, my God. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. But, uh, you know, Claire, what are some other good examples that you kind of had in your mind as you were crafting this story? Um. Well, I'll give you some ones that I haven't mentioned elsewhere um secret exclusives Ooh. um i really like flesh tone um which is um quite a small movie i think um the star is martin kemp mm. um who to you i is that someone to you it sounds and like it should be, and yet I am blanking. Vaguely familiar, but I'm not placing it. Okay, he was in Spandau Ballet, but to me, Wait, the an band? English person. Pardon? Yes. I'm, I'm sorry, the 80s band? Yes. Oh, okay. okay. Um, to me, he's sincerely more famous as um, a baddie on the soap EastEnders. Ah, um, okay. Where he was very horrible and very criminal and killed Saskia and framed a nice boy for it. It was awful. Um, but yeah, he um, he's in this movie and he plays a very different character um, because in that role, 
I don't remember his name in EastEnders. It may have been Steve, it may not. Um, but in that role, he's very tough. He's untouchable, you know? He's a hard man, uh, like a, a London organized criminal. Um, the only way to get rid of him is to kill him, um, which I think they may have done twice. But anyway, in Flesh Tone, um, he, he plays an artist um, who is sad all the time. Um, and he gets involved with a woman over the phone. Um, and he's extremely vulnerable with her. Um, he shares the weird stuff that he's into, um, which happens to be the idea of cut up dead bodies. Um, mm. And she gets into it with him um, and he paints her cut up and she's like, great. Um, but then she turns out to not be quite what she seems and he's in trouble, his life is in trouble. It's a very vulnerable role. Um, and he's not sure of himself and he's not safe and he's not in charge of anything, which um, sometimes I think you get that in the more famous, more mainstream erotic thrillers. Um, like Michael Douglas is famously, you know, persecuted or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, the bunny is boiled. But in the, um, the ones that don't make so much of a splash, I think probably for this reason, um, there's more vulnerability in the men, which makes them a better watch, um, especially for people who can relate to you, but don't necessarily want to relate whilst watching to vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, I thought Deep Waters, the Ben Affleck movie from last year, um, oh, was yeah. actually really good. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was really, really funny. Um, and really fun and so had some great ideas and some really fun character work. Um, mm -hmm. That was the one with uh, Ana de Armas, right? Yes, it was. Okay, yes, I've seen that. Okay. <laughs> um, what else? Anything with James Spader. Anything. Um, <laughs> Including his season of The Office. <laughs> anything. Um, but... See, the, he has movies that aren't technically erotic thrillers, but are, um, like Jack's Back, mm -hmm. which, do you know that movie? I Matt? Know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it's, um, it's just, it, it, it's basically just a slasher. Um, there's a, not a great deal of blood and guts, but it's about a serial killer and it's um, got plenty of jumps and tension and stuff like that but um it manages to center not like as the main character but it does manage to center the feelings and opinions and perspective of um this woman who works with james spader at a um like a, a free clinic um and then he gets murdered and then his identical twin bad boy brother turns up um, to try and solve his murder and she is so 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 horny for him and it's so like psychosexually viable because um, the good boy version would always put her off when she would try and hint that she wanted to date him and now this bad version has come while she's grieving and he's so still and hostile and focused, 
you can like watch her mind as she computes all of the options. It's tremendous. I can't bring any others to mind right now, but there, 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 there are <laughs> like there are um, a wide range of perspectives. They're just forgotten. Son, oh, Sea of Love with Al Pacino. That's another one, mm. um, yes. which really goes to great pains to show him being vulnerable and being out of control and submitting essentially to the woman who is just as un, like more unsafe but it it, it 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 like air quotes lowers him to a uh, a similar more accessible level that creates a sense of piety between them that's important quick note before we get back to you know talking about your comic which is what we're here for um <laughs> brian kemp i i finally remembered what i i knew him from from a quick scan he was the titular vampire in the 90s supernatural erotic thriller with Alyssa milano embrace of the vampire so i haven't seen that i'll have yeah, to watch it. it it's it's pretty camp pretty you know late night cinemax but he is the titular vampire in that so i was like okay that's what i remember him from uh, along with appearances in a few other you know father uh, brown and variant miss marple and he's done all manner of things like that mm. but yes the comic the co <laughs> you know you keep <laughs> i'm sorry i had one more horrible detour uh but yes we're we're we're, we're coming so you know this book wears its influences on its inside cover uh you know citing jane campion jim steinman mm -hmm. uh pat Farducci, uh alice cooper and finally that guy from jamiroquai yeah. Now, youths who may be listening, uh, my uh, my generation has done an admirable job of shoving Jamiroquai down deep into the dusty attic of our collective past uh, in a steamer trunk labeled Don't Show the Zoomers next to uh, Vote for Pedro Ringer t-shirts, metal ball necklaces, and Janko jeans. But uh, those of us who lived through 1997 understand that Jamiroquai actually had an outsized toehold on pop culture for a small but powerful bit. Uh, they won a Grammy. They won MTV Video of the Year. They set the Guinness record for the best-selling funk album in history. Uh, and also, they were on the soundtrack to the bad Godzilla movie that we've also tried to repress, uh, along with a pretty good Rage Against the Machine song that says in the lyrics that this soundtrack single is a distraction from the true ills of the world. Uh, and also that Puff Daddy Led Zeppelin mashup. But uh, Claire, I'm, I'm interested interested in you know your perspective here. How did Jamiroquai hurt you in England? Um, sorry, that, that, that that's just not the the direction I expected the question to take. Um, <laughs> I would, I mean, I was in in 1997. I was ten. Okay, so I wasn't like getting um my information from you know cool places so it was it was really just like a complete osmosis they were there in the culture they were famous um the the guy in question jk mm -hmm. um dated denise van outen who was a very popular and cool tv presenter okay. um it was like you, you would recognize the, it was the video was probably on top of the pops it was probably on the weekend kids tv shows 
I don't really know. Like it just, it, in the nineties, culture was different. Like the, the way that we perceived it, the places that we perceived it, the, the streams through which it came were kind of united. Everyone was getting the same thing. We, in, in, in Britain, most of us only had four or five channels. Um, the, like there are only so many radio stations. Um, it, it, they were just, they were there. They were part of the moment. Um, and he's fucking sexy. Like I was 10, but I knew that. There you go. Yeah, no, it's just, Jamiroquai was part of this, this interesting time in pop culture where I feel like we were grasping at every straw we could find because Kurt Cobain, Tupac, and Biggie had all died to just find something. And I think Jamiroquai, the Spice Girls, Ska, that weird period where we all got into swing music, uh, they were just all part of this stew of, of anything goes from the late 90s. It's just fascinates me. But uh, let's let's get back let's get back to the magic necklace you know uh who i i'm i'm curious you know we're talking about erotic thrillers here this is a very this is a very sexual book you know yeah who do you picture when you picture someone reading it i don't because if i did mm -hmm. that would be gross <laughs> um <laughs> like fair I didn't, I didn't make it to be there when people read it, you know, like it is, um, it's not that kind of missive. Um, I release it, you know, <laughs> I, I release it to those who may find it. Um, and perhaps I need not know how they do. <laughs> it's interesting sort of removes the voyeurism aspect of the erotic thriller. But yes, no, I, I, I see your point. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, as somebody who works as an editor, uh, mm. who edits the editor on this one? Um, well, me again. I mean, you can't do that. So that, that's a bad answer. Um, there is no editor, essentially. Um, I just, I draft extensively and then I try and get it right. And um, if, I mean, I have, my last book, I had an editor, um, Douglas Noble. He, he published um, Take Me to the Place I Love in his A Pocket Chiller series. Um, and he gave me edits mm. um, and we discussed them briefly. And I, I, I went with some and, and didn't with others. Um, but for this, I didn't want it was kind of important not to um, ask permission. And sometimes it's hard to get out of the headspace that sees editorial as, um, you know, the boss to some degree. Um, I didn't want to be questioned. I didn't want to be pressed. I wanted to do exactly what I wanted it to be like this and see if it worked. Um, and because it's not, um, it's not being published through a publisher. I have no responsibility but to myself. Um, and the responses that I've had from readers, early readers, um, have been very encouraging. Um, if if I got anything wrong, I guess I'll find out. 
Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about, you know, the, the coloring is an interesting mix of spot pink and uh, these sort of heart patterns that fill in spaces. Mm -hmm. how, did, how did you come to settle on that? Well, I like tones, screen tones. Um, I just think they're nice. Um, I like the, um, the elusive um, quality that they have. They're not solid color. They're not anything specific. They, like, they don't exist in real life. Mm -hmm. um, when I used to be much more of a, um, a careful and regular, like in, in school, when we would get drawing assignments, I would do, use a lot of cross-hatching and that, that's the same. You don't get cross-hatched or hatched lines in real life, it's it's a drawing only aspect, and tones are the same. They they they're sort of Brechtian, um, like they demand to be understood as a piece of comic book vocabulary, um, which means that they have to stand for something. Which means that the reader has to decide what they stand for and what they mean, um, and that essential level of challenge, I suppose, is what I want to offer. Um, I made them heart-shaped because it's a romance, <laughs> you know, it's, it's cute, um, it's, um, a little bit, um, facetious maybe, um, there's like a, I really, I can't think of a different term for it, and this is not ideal, but there's, no, no, I've got a better one, it's, it's a little bit coquettish, um, and that, like, that's the vibe um that that's what felt right for um for what Enrita is doing and for what she's trying to do and for what she hopes for um yeah it 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 felt like the most effective use of the available um comic book making tools mm. now uh at the same time, uh, so you're also, or you were also the editor on uh, Paul Aller's almost wrapped uh, Zoop campaign for yeah. the Butterfly House. Now, you've worked with Paul before on stuff, and mm -hmm. uh, this seems like a pretty personal tale for them. Uh, how was the experience this time around? Oh, pretty much uh, the same, honestly. Um, it's usually pretty smooth because Paul always has a strong idea of what they want to achieve with a book, with a story. Um, and so because I don't have to help work that up, or there's, there's very little like solidifying that I need to ensure happens because sometimes someone will, will have ideas but not really a purpose. Um, they'll, they'll want to be working in a certain genre or in a certain aesthetic but not exactly have a path in mind or a, um, a solid plot or a, 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 an idea about structure. Um, but Paul always has structural ideas. Um, so on the whole, all I ever need to do, uh, this was a little bit different with Sister Crash because that was a, um, a genre that they're not well-versed in, but I am. So there was more push-pull there. Um, basically, there, there may be one or two structural thematic um, stitches that I'll suggest, but and beyond that, on the whole, it will be line edits, um, which in the case of a silent script will be like 
suggest for um, like adjusting the resources that you're offering the artist? Um, like I might have said, maybe say, concentrate on this, like turn the focus here a little more. Maybe um, we need to gather some reference imagery, um, maybe explain um, the effect that you want this scene to have on the reader so that one knows um, where he's going um, so that he can do his job um, certain of what, what effect he's trying to achieve. Um, yeah, it was it was largely as pleasant an experience as it ever is, which is quite pleasant. <laughs> we work <laughs> we work well together because um, Paul never really objects to um, a a good faith criticism. Um, they are always committed to making the best and most subtly uh, built up comic book. Um, there's never like, I don't want to do that because this is my book and I want to do it my way. It's all like the, the, the eyes are on the prize always. Um, there's no like jostling for um, lower considerations, I suppose. It's very smooth. Uh, working with Paul as you have, uh, how much time have you gotten to spend over Zoom with uh, their adorable dachshund short round? Um, honestly, none, because that little guy has tiny legs. <laughs> <laughs> they don't reach the camera. <laughs> they don't. Uh, that is my favorite dog on the comics internet. <laughs> He's a good one, isn't he? Yes, uh, mostly because he actually he looks like a, a, a slightly chubbier version of my own. Uh, I, I have two miniature dachshunds as pets, so. Oh. Uh, favorite. But, uh, are there other projects out there right now with your fingerprints on them that people should be aware of? Oh, yeah. Um, Wild Nature Volume 3 should probably be... Um, I'm just doing the last lettering notes. Um for that right now uh i think the kickstarter should be happening in spring um like david was just at uh dundee comic-con i think um i think he said he sold out of both world nature volume one and his other book decades that i worked on him with um so that that should be good um it's the last volume the final volume of world nature um three and done um so yeah, everything is coming to a head. Everything is, the crescendo has arrived. Um, what else? Um, I have a lot of projects on. Um, what's nearest? Miskatonic High always has something going. They put out a Kickstarter about every three months. Um, mm. I do. Um, I do final round. Uh, lettering consultations for them which is like placement and also dialogue captions etc making sure the character voice is tip-top making sure everything is clear everything's understandable everything flows the best making sure um, recently I've really been pushing them to uh, get expressive with their lettering so mm -hmm. keep an eye out for that because I, I like what they've um, they've been listening which is always nice um, <laughs> 
I think everything else is pretty much still developmental. Um, everything current. I'm probably missing something and it's going to be terrible. Um, but if I have, um, you know, check out my website. It should be there. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything else that's upcoming immediately. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have any pets? No. Okay. I don't. Uh, we have pigeons that live um, in the little, it's called the void, which is, the, there's just, there's, there's a void between our building and the next one. Um, and they live in there and they make lovely soft sounds. Um, and sometimes they have babies in there, which is delightful. Um, but no, we don't look after them. We don't feed them or anything. So I don't think they really count. <laughs> ah. Uh, penultimate question what are you reading right now right now nothing um i just finished not all girls are stupid by manami Kuta. um and i probably should start um the last book i got from Perrin press i have a subscription they put out um these beautiful uh translated novellas um every quarter um, but right at this very moment, I'm between volumes. Um, I'm not doing too well at these questions at all, am I? <laughs> no, 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 no. You're doing, you're doing fine. But uh, we, we, are, we are at the end here. So before we release you back into the world, how can people follow you online and keep up with uh, the Magic Necklace and everything else that you're working on? Well, ideally... They will go to the uh, the project landing page, the Zoop landing page, and put their email address in the little box and subscribe to get the updates so that they will know as soon as the project goes live. Because, you know, going live on Valentine's Day is very adorable of us. But what <laughs> if people are busy? I hope they're busy. If they're not, that will be something good to do. If they are, then if you put your email address in the box and subscribe, then at least you'll get a reminder. Okay. Um, other than that, I'm on Twitter at Illus Claire. I'm on TikTok, Claire Napier. Okay. And my website has links to everything that I've forgotten, which I will have. Absolutely. ClaireNapier.com. That's what it is. <laughs> All right, Claire. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF where you can find this podcast, along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes Shoutouts on the podcast and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a Pete Wisdom Hot Claws sticker designed by Kevin Newburn. A $3 donation gets you access to our bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $4 donation gets you access to Our Son Pete and the sticker. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis, Robert Secundus, Cat Purcell, Liz Large, and Will Nevin from Comics XF. Carla Pacheco, 
Mike Sagawa, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. The Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF, assuming Twitter still works. And until next week, remember, if Spider-Man can teach the Beyonder to poop, you can pretty much do anything you set your mind to. I believe in you. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.